Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by Coleman Stavish and Juliana Iani from Prosha to talk about data-driven pathology. Coleman is the co-founder and CTO of Prosha, and Juliana is the Vice President of, of AI Research and Development. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Heather. Coleman, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create Prosha? Sure. You know, I think for a lot of people who have the opportunity to found or work on a startup company, the opportunity is at the intersection of your interests, uh, the people you know, and a willingness to work on something new. So for me, uh, I developed an interest in computer programming from a young age, uh, started working on iPhone app development in the early days of the iPhone uh, before and just after the App Store came out. And that led me to pursue a computer science degree at the University of Pittsburgh. And during my time there, I got a call from a longtime friend of mine, David West, who uh, was working, who I, I've actually known him since kindergarten. So we go way back. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, and he gave me a call and we were talking about uh, this project he was working on at Johns Hopkins in the field of pathology. And uh, there was some, there was a software uh, opportunity. There was an opportunity to build software for pathology. And I had no idea what pathology was, uh, but I, I read about it and it, I immediately was interested in, and, and saw, you know, a high potential there. And uh, the rest is history. I, I really kind of never looked back and I haven't lost interest since. Juliana, what about you? What path led you to Prosha? Um, so very different path. Um, my, so I kind of was interested in, in health tech and biotech in general, um, since high school and, um, pursued a degree in biomedical engineering. And, um, during that time I did an internship in, um, biomedical informatics and was really, really interested in in kind of all the things that you could do with data. Um, but that that internship also made me realize that um, the place with the most data, <laughs> as I could see it um, in, in that area was, was in medical imaging. And so um, I became really interested in MRI and um, pursued my PhD um, also in biomedical engineering, but focused in MRI, um, so I was kind of build, building algorithms, um, both on the acquisition side of things and on the image reconstruction side of things. Um, but as part of that, I, um, I became really interested in machine learning and um, started incorporating that into my work and um, kind of was, was really, really interested in deep learning and seeing that take off in just about every other field um, but it was a little bit slower and at least on the academic side um, in MRI. Um, <clears throat> and so I was kind of looking around seeing, saying like, why is no one doing this? <laughs> um, and I, I really also wanted to get closer to um, the, the patient side of things. Um, I, was, I was not patient, no pun intended, um, in, in uh, seeing the impact of my work. So um, realized that I needed to hop over to industry and um, Prosha, Prosha was a really good fit for me. Um, <clears throat> someplace that I could um, still pursue uh, medical imaging, but um, realized some of the, some of the impact of AI. And uh, I 
I started at Prosha five years ago and have been um, building and leading out the, the AI team um, since then. So what does Prosha do? Um, why is this important in improving outcomes for cancer patients? So Heather, in a sentence, I would say Prosha builds software to improve the way pathology is practiced. Uh, but what does that actually mean? So I, I think we have to look at pathology first and then you know connect that to the, the patient outcome uh, question. So pathology is the crucial is a, it's a crucial part of the diagnostic medicine as well as drug development and, and preclinical research. And pathology tells us through studying tissue and disease, uh, tells us who needs to be treated for what diseases, especially cancer, which treatments are the most appropriate for a particular patient, and whether those treatments were successful uh, for that for that patient. And uh, better accuracy in diagnosis means less overdiagnosis and less underdiagnosis, which typically leads to better patient outcomes and quality of life. Um, and in on the other side, in a research and preclinical setting, pathology is crucial to that drug development pipeline. It's helping pharmaceutical companies develop new treatments um, while assessing their safety and efficacy. And in that in that area, in that arena, our software is helping uh, the research laboratories as well as diagnostic laboratories transition from analog pathology to a new discipline, which is digital pathology. It's more data-driven pathology uh, using digital images rather than glass slides. And with that digital imaging uh, shift, uh, there's there's a whole lot more data that's at the fingertips of, of scientists who are working on new treatments, as well as uh, diagnostic pathologists who are looking to diagnose a particular patient's disease. And, and some of that, uh, of course, is through the use of machine learning and another novel technology that can be built on top of that foundation now that we're in a digital medium. So how does machine learning play in your technology? What, what role um, does it do? So we first thought about machine learning playing a role in analyzing images of tissue uh, that had been captured from pathology slides. So it's a, a glass pathology slide containing human tissue or animal tissue. And then that's been digitized uh, with a whole slide scanner. And then once it's in an image form, can we process the image um, and uh, you know, apply some sort of machine learning model or, or pattern recognition to it to recognize the patterns of a particular disease or cancer? Um, and to, the, to this day, that's still at the core of what we do. Um, but we've recently broadened into applying that similar technology into other problems within digital pathology, uh, mainly to improve the general usability and, and workflow of what is is really a radically new technology for laboratory medicine. So as as labs are converting from you know, a, a century or more of operating in an analog fashion and into a digital medium, there's we found some other problems that can be solved uh, through machine learning as well, in addition to uh, recognizing a particular disease, for example. So one of the products you've developed is an automated quality control system for whole slide images. What kind of challenges had you encountered with, with these whole slide images that made this product necessary? Yeah, so we're, we're seeing um, that, that many labs kind of both on um, the clinical side and on the research side are having quality issues impact their work. So about five to 10% of slides have some sort of quality issue in most labs. Um, that can be anything from like air bubbles to tissue that's missing from the slide, tissue that's cut off from the slide, um, areas that are blurry or have 
tissue folds, um, some things that may impact what happens to this slide down the line and some things that may not. Um, and so a lot of labs are having trouble dealing with this. So um, they've taken different approaches. Some labs, um, you know, have high enough volume that they can, they can have someone who's responsible for uh, manually performing quality control on the slides. And, but even, uh, even someone who's really experienced at that, um, maybe spending um, an hour to, to perform that quality control on just 20 to 25 slides. Um, <clears throat> and many labs can't afford to have someone doing that. So um, it takes, you know, until um, down the line when there's either a pathologist trying to diagnose the image or um, read the image um, for whatever study or, uh, you know, someone trying to perform downstream image analysis on that image before uh, you realize there's a problem and that the slide needs to be rescanned or reprepped. Um, and so um, a quality control tool can um, reduce, reduce the number of slides that kind of make it to that stage. Does the quality control system itself use machine learning? Yes. Yeah. Um, we, we try not to kind of take a, take a hammer approach to everything. So um, some of the, some of the applications we have use, you know, just traditional computer vision, uh, but it's kind of a combination of that and machine learning that drive this application. So it's based on some sort of training set with different um, quality defects annotated and trained either with machine learning or with more, you know, traditional, simpler methods, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. So how does this quality control system influence the downstream use of machine learning? For example, if you had no quality control on these images and you were applying machine learning for some, some other purpose, what would be the problem in doing that? Yeah, so um, that's actually something that um, you probably could guess. We experience quite a bit um, where there's, um, you know, some, some issues with with a slide um, that's being used for some downstream either image analysis or um, another AI application, um, and and those things do have an effect. I think there's been there's been some research on that. Uh, we've done some of our own work trying to assess um, how those how those issues come into play. But um, for example, we've definitely found that. Um, out of focus can affect some of these downstream analyses. Um, that's where the images are a little bit blurry. Um, there's also kind of more insidious um, issues with some of the slides. So for example, um, you'll often find slides that have been annotated with pen ink. Um, that's something that's, that can be quite common to do in some settings and um, that if you're trying to train a diagnostic model, can really bias the model. Um, so I, it turns out that that ink is really something that you know you may use to annotate a tumor, um, but it can really trick your model into thinking, oh, that that pen ink region has something to do with the tumor. Maybe anything that has pen ink on it is a tumor. Um, so it can really really have an effect in some cases. I imagine that different labs might also have a different prevalence of, of different defects too. Um, and that, that might complicate things further. For, for example, 
you know, slides from a particular lab are more likely to be out of focus or more likely to have those pen markings. Um, and you, you don't want the model to pick up on those defects instead of the characteristic yeah. that you're trying to train. Yeah, absolutely. And totally lots of variation between labs and even, um, you know, you may find at one lab there's a more experienced tech. Um, and so there's there's sort of better quality slides or some labs have someone cleaning their slides before scanning. Um, there can be all those those kind of variations. I think the, with the automated quality control product from a research and development standpoint, I think it was one of those happy accidents to some extent where we identify you know, there's a, a product management, uh, someone in product management said, hey, it would actually be really good if we could you know, have a product that could detect these these quality defects. And, and Juliana and you and your team had kind of already built some prototypes for this just to do your other, you know, pre-processing work for, for some other, for other uh, R&D we were doing. So it was one of those uh, happy accidents where we found another use that was more general than uh, for the technology than we maybe originally conceived. So your dermatopathology solution uses machine learning to categorize skin disease. Beyond quality control, what are the other challenges you see with pulse slide images is variations from different scanners, different different staining intensities over time, that type of thing. So with this particular dermatopathology model, how do you ensure that you're that's robust to variations across across these scanners, labs, patient populations, any other types of variations that you see? Yeah, great question. Um, so our our Dermatopathology solution, which is called Dermai, I do have to note it's for research use only um, currently. Um, but what it does is is take images of skin bi skin biopsies and um, help ensure that cases get routed to the best best pathologists to diagnose that case. Um, and it also flags suspected melanoma cases to help in prioritizing those cases. Um, but how we how we ensure this system kind of generalizes to all these variations that are so prevalent um, is really kind of a layered approach. Um, so part of how we address variation is the data. That's kind of the um, the first line of defense. Um, so we like to train our models with data from more than one scanner and more than one lab uh, to account for some of those variations. Uh, Another thing that we do is um, ensuring that um, in any way possible, we can improve in distribution performance um, as is correlated with the out of distribution performance. And, um, you know, finally it's, it's methods that, um, you know, have, have give a focus to that in both training and development on specifically um, ways to improve um, robustness to those variations. Um, so uh, methods that specifically are, are aimed at improving the generalization performance during training. <clears throat> and there's a few different ways that we're doing that. Um, my colleague Yang Jiang is presenting at MedNeurops um, on that topic on December 2nd. Um, so check that out if you're interested. 
How does the regulatory process in the U.S. and perhaps abroad affect the way you develop machine learning models? I, I understand that not all AI products are, have gone through a regulatory process at, at this point, but maybe even in the way that you're thinking about it for the future. Yeah, yeah, it does come into play. Um, a lot of it is a lot of it is stuff that you know we're already doing to ensure that we have. Um, robust technology that really kind of survives, survives in the wild. Um, but it's, it's something that we have to keep in mind from the very beginning, thinking about developing an AI system. In Europe now, the IBDR is in effect. So I think that's something that most companies are kind of still learning how to navigate. But uh, there's, there's still some commonalities between, um, between all, of, all of these paths. Uh, so it's about following sort of the proper development process to develop systems that are both robust and well-tested. And that means kind of not just from a software perspective, but from an algorithm perspective as well. And I think one, one of the heaviest impacts to development for us, just to give you an example, has been areas where we find there's a great level of disagreement in the ground truth data. Uh, so that will come out when you test, um, and we have to account for that disagreement during development, but it's kind of one of those things that you want to account for anyway. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, lots of, lots of factors. Actually, there's another aspect of the, of the regulatory process that comes after the development and validation, uh, phases where you're actually, uh, deployed the, the technology somewhere, the, the device or product somewhere. And uh, the regulatory term for it is post-market surveillance. And that is that applies to any medical device, whether it's software or AI or, or hardware. Um, but it's, it's basically monitoring uh, performance. And if, was there a degradation in, in performance? Was there a, um, an event, like a negative event that may have affected the uh, user or the, uh, the uh, patient who was, whose data was being analyzed? And so I think that puts another burden on developers of this technology. Um, and it's, I think it's a good burden. I think it, it, may, it makes sense, um, but it also requires uh, thinking through how, not just how are we going to validate, but then how are we going to uh, keep tabs on, on the different deployments and uh, in, ensure that we're not seeing performance uh, degrade as maybe uh, the data or the, the conditions within the laboratory change. Uh, so do, things do drift uh, in terms of uh, how a lab is preparing their their, their samples and, and other things can change and if the if the model um, then the model may not react well in all cases to that so it's it's critical that that performance be monitored and um, and and documented uh, and that's something that uh, there, there may actually be additional development or uh, tooling that's required to really manage that well yeah definitely that's a great point so the technology developing is to help the pathology workflow. So, you know, studying real patient samples in, in the lab, how do you ensure that what you decide to develop will really fit in with the clinical workflow and provide the right kind of assistance to doctors and patients? I think it's a, it's a great question, Heather. I, I think there's, there's two main aspects of it. I see one is, is the, from a, from an input and output perspective, is the model or the product that's using that's using machine learning in some way is it is it answering the right right question is it producing a output that 
is valuable and is going to have some impact, a positive one, on the either a pathologist's ability to diagnose a case or a, um, a laboratory technician's ability to complete their work in an efficient manner um, or any number of other business challenges or, or diagnostic challenges that a lab may face. So there's, there's that kind of basic question. Are you solving the right problem? Um, and uh, that, that's one. But the other thing is, let's say you've solved the right problem from a, on paper. Uh, how is it being applied? How is that solution being applied into the laboratory? Is it, does it have the right hooks into the existing workflow? Uh, is, it, is it usable? Is it, is it something that a pathologist can access and, and you know, they, can, they can get through their day with that uh, without having to make a big detour and, and actually add time and effort? Uh, so something as an example, you know, when I, when I first got involved in pathology, uh, I, I had to learn a lot about pathology. And so I read so many papers that described these incredible applications of, um, of image analysis and machine learning technology to do things like identify uh, disease and predict patient outcomes. And yet when I first set foot inside a pathology lab and got a tour, I didn't see any of that technology, uh, not even on a trial basis. And uh, there are many reasons for this. And one is, you know, I was a little bit naive and I, you know, I was, I you know, later realized, well, just because it's in a paper doesn't mean it's ready for use on patients, of course. But there's also a bigger reason, I think, uh, for that. And that was no matter how accurate or how valuable that information is that's produced by the model, if it's not actually introduced in the right way into the, the overall workflow, uh, it's not going to be put into routine use. Um, labs are are very busy operations they don't they don't necessarily have time to do a lot of exploratory things they are they are tightly optimized machines and if you're going to introduce new technology it really has to fit uh, within that existing status quo and so for a for a company or, or a group of people that are developing technology and hoping to actually see it put into practice there needs to be a deep understanding of that current status quo and a deep respect really for the practitioners the people who are not just the pathologist, but anyone who's working in that environment, you're asking them to, to change something and you really want to make them make the smallest change possible that's going to have the biggest impact for them. So it requires that 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 respect and understanding of how things are currently done. Uh, and so and that that gives you the visibility to say, well, I think this is where we can put the technology in. And it's it's not just a machine learning model with a graphical interface on top of it. It's there's there's more to the deployment methodology in terms of we need we need a, a software solution that can incorporate one or more different machine learning uh, modules and present those results in the right place at the right time to the right person uh, and so that's where as, as a company at prosha we we invest a lot in not just the ai aspect or the um the analytic aspect but also in what we call platform uh, which is able to drive that workflow um for the for the base case, just operate the digital laboratory. And then that is the the, the vehicle in which we can introduce um, thoughtfully, hopefully, uh, the the novel technology that can that can have some some positive impacts on top of that. And so we've been really fortunate to have um, colleagues at ProSha who have spent long careers working in laboratory medicine, uh, both in in the as a as a as physicians as, and as uh, other lab staff. Um, and we've we've had just fantastic feedback from over the years from partners and customers who have um, in the early days took a chance on our new products and and were able to actually use them and, and then provide really constructive feedback and we've been able to to iterate on that so that's been a that's been we're very you know thankful and fortunate to have had that opportunity is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of ai powered startups 
Yeah, I think uh, one thing I would say is prepare to iterate. Uh, so the first solution that you build is probably not going to be the final destination, the final solution. And um, I think the fast pace of this field kind of demands some constant innovation. Um, but iterating, iterating is really what's going to to get you uh, a product that your users can actually use, or if it's you know internally focused AI, um, same for your internal users. I'd also say um, to heavily invest in your team. There's really nothing that replaces having good people um, and very skilled people working for you um, and building building these AI products. Um, so that's been that's been one of the keys to our success. And um, then kind of echoing a lot of what Coleman said, um, if you're a user facing AI company, just constantly getting feedback from your users at every stage of development and even post-development, uh, I think there's really, really nothing that's more valuable. What about you, Coleman? Any advice to, to add? So I would echo everything Juliana said, and I would I would add just kind of on the startup angle specifically, you know, there's there's a lot of investment dollars um, going after you know, AI oriented startups, and and that's that's been great for the field. Um, but I think it's something that we've learned our, ourselves is is how to is how to balance uh, that the uh, the investor pitch about AI and, and its potential with with uh, near and immediate term smaller successes that can build you a road to that you know more uh, ambitious future. If if, there, if you've articulated a vision uh, for what you want your AI to do in five years, that's great. You need to have that vision, um, but you it's it can't be it really shouldn't be in my opinion a binary outcome of we did or didn't achieve that five year vision. There have to be a, you know a, ideally a series of milestones that you can. That each one is within reach. Uh, it's maybe ambitious, but each one is is credibly within your reach with your current resources um, at that time. And so, uh, that's something that that startups really need to uh, be be critical about. They have to they have to critically assess what they're capable of, um, push themselves, but also make sure that there are intermediate wins. Whether that's uh, a research, whether that's a uh, a research publication that demonstrates, you know, the technology has been de-risked in some way. Whether that's early adopters who are using the technology on a trial basis, uh, whether that's um, first revenue—that's, uh, you know, that's—is uh, a sign of something that can be grown. That there's there is a market for the technology. There's an depending on the industry, there could be different intermediate milestones that are smaller wins. Each of them, you have to you have to celebrate those when you when you have the opportunity and. And make sure that you can build that path to the five-year vision, rather than um, just kind of uh, hope it's all going to work out in five years. Yeah, I love that. Small wins along the way. Finally, where do you see the impact of Prosha in three to five years? So, from my view, I you know Prosha is not developing new treatments for cancer. We're not personally diagnosing patients and choosing their treatment plans. We're not doing that either. And so, I I really hope our impact will be measured instead in in the following two ways on the on the research and drug development side i hope that as a company we can build um build the software platforms that house pathology data uh for for uh, pharma and life sciences organizations who are developing new drugs and putting them through trials 
Uh, I also, um, and I, I think that can that can have. I hope that has some, you know, positive impact in terms of the number of new therapies, uh, new therapeutics that can go through that pipeline and, and make it to the clinic. I, you know, I think Prosha will play a, in the grand scheme of things, um, uh, I think a, a, a small role in that there's there's so much other things that go into drug development besides um, what we do at Prosha. But I hope we can play a, a role there and at least being a broad platform that can that can house all that data and enable you know a faster um, research process and and potentially enable people to do experiments that they may not have been able to conceive prior to them having that data all in one place. On the diagnostic side, I, I think we can we hope to see impact over a five-year period in terms of uh, the pathologists who are working every day reviewing uh, patient samples that they could be using our software to help them go through that process and um, have a better ergonomic experience than they currently have on a microscope that they could have the ability to uh, diagnose cases uh, remotely uh, without having and maybe assisting patients who are in uh, far-flung uh, areas of the world that may not have access to uh, subspecialty pathologist um, expertise. Uh, and also to, to the extent that we can introduce uh, helpful technology that can perhaps improve the quality of diagnosis. Um, and maybe that has a, for each patient, uh, maybe a marginal uh, to, to, to positive impact in terms of their, their outcome. Maybe, maybe it means someone gets the right diagnosis a little bit faster. Um, in aggregate, I think that could have a really big impact. And I think we have to just focus on enabling the practitioners to, to, to work to the top of their license um, and, and enable the scientists within the, the drug development field to, to work to the top of their license as well. And, and I think I see Prosha as an enabling technology and, um, you know, pushing, pushing the existing brilliant minds to, to maybe be a bit, uh, to have a bit more impact, uh, themselves. So that's, that's how I see it. That's great to hear. This has been great. Your team at Prosha is doing some really interesting work for pathology. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? So our website is uh, prosha.com. It's P-R-O-S-C-I-A.com. And from there, I think we, we have uh, lots of information about the company as well as some, some of the uh, scientific publications that Juliana mentioned. Great. I'll link to that in the show notes. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.